Tonight I would like to speak about why we're doing what we're doing here, which you might well be wondering at this point, and also how to do it, how to understand the doing of it with greater subtlety and precision. One of the most famous lines in the teachings of the Buddha and it really summarizes in some way the whole teaching, is the opening line of the Dhammapada, where the Buddha says that mind is the forerunner of all things. All actions are led by the mind. All actions are created by the mind. It's particularly obvious in these times when we look about in the world and the tremendous amount of suffering and difficulty. A superficial assessment leads us to look at the symptoms, at the actions. A deeper assessment would really suggest that we look at the source Where do the actions come from? They come from people's minds. So how can we understand the mind, this amazingly creative and destructive, depending on which way we go, how can we understand this amazing energy which both creates the world that we live in and out of which we also create ourselves, our sense of ourselves. Even within one day of a retreat, one day of meditation practice, I think it becomes lucidly obvious that the mind is lost a good part of the time. Where we really don't know what's going on. Where the mind gets lost in this endless procession of thoughts and feelings and memories and fantasies and reveries and plans and judgments. What's so amazing is they don't even have to be pleasant. It's not as if, well, we're choosing just to dwell in this pleasant fabrication of our minds. How often is it that we are reliving old hurts and angers and arguments and difficulties? All of you have already graduated into the first insight of insight meditation. You've reached the first stage of insight, which is the understanding of how very difficult it is to control the mind. And we see just how slippery and fickle and unsteady the mind actually is. One thought begins. We don't even know that it's begun. 
And a whole train of association follows from that thought. And we have no idea where the train is going. And somehow or other, we land up in some destination. It's like taking a journey to some foreign country, you know. We don't know where we're going. We don't know where we bought the ticket to. And we might be happy, we might be sad, we might be involved in some immense drama, we might be filled with some strong emotion. And it's all just our mind and getting lost in it, not knowing what's happening. We see that nothing is so changeable as this mind. Just moment to moment, the flickering, mutable quality What's somewhat interesting about this all is that it's not just a product of our times and our culture and our conditioning. It actually is representative of a very universal quality of the mind, and it was found in the Buddhist time as well. I'd just like to read to you a few of the things the Buddha said about the nature of this mind. Remembering, of course, the particular examples he used came out of his culture. But I think you'll get the drift. Just as an arrowsmith shapes an arrow to perfection with fire, so does the wise person shape the mind, which is fickle, unsteady, vulnerable, and erratic. How good it is to rein the mind, which is unruly, capricious, rushing wherever it pleases. The mind so harnessed will bring one happiness. A wise person should pay attention to the mind, which is very difficult to perceive. It is extremely subtle and wanders wherever it pleases. The mind well guarded and trained will bring happiness. Your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own unguarded thoughts. And a well-directed mind creates more well-being than even the loving actions of parents towards their children. From this first insight which we can see for ourselves. I think at this point it's not theoretical. From from just watching, we see how unsteady the mind is. From this first insight, there grows a deep appreciation, I think, of the importance, the need, and the urgency to tame and to train this mind and heart of ours. This mind and heart which creates the world, creates our own inner world. The urgency of doing this work is so painfully obvious now. 
Saddam Hussein thinks, let's invade Kuwait. Thought in the mind. George Bush, let's protect our oil. A couple of thoughts and a million people are there fighting one another, killing one another. It's amazing. Where does it come from? And it's not just them. That's, that's the thing I think we need to realize. It's really all of us, and it's the nature of our minds. And we need to look in our own, in our own lives. The conflict may be perhaps not on quite such a grand scale, but it's the same forces at work. So the question for us is how do we accomplish this very difficult task? This task of taming the mind, of training the heart. So it's not simply acting out deeply entrenched habit patterns of conditioning. The great spiritual genius of the Buddha was that he could see so clearly both the nature of the suffering that existed in the world, the cause, the origin of of that suffering within the mind, and how to free ourselves from it. There was such clarity and such precision of understanding the dynamics of this energy of mind. He saw that the key to the training, the very center of this whole process of training the mind, of freeing ourselves, rests in the cultivation of one particular quality. And that's the quality of mindful awareness. This is not as simple as it seems. Mindful awareness. What actually are these words about? There is a wide spectrum of awareness. We can be aware in very many different ways. Mindfulness is one particular kind of awareness. Mindfulness and awareness are not synonymous. Awareness is the spectrum. Mindfulness is one narrow track within that spectrum of awareness. And it's possible to be aware without being mindful. And this is what I would like to talk about tonight. Because very often... We're putting in a good effort. We're putting in a sincere effort. And we think we're being mindful because we're aware of what's going on. But it's not a mindful awareness. And so it's very important to have a clear understanding of that quality of mind which actually makes us free. 
it's possible to be present without being free. And so it's helpful to understand this. Give some examples of how this happens in our practice. Suppose we're with the breath, and with the breath two or three or four times. And then depending on our conditioning, we may have one of several thoughts. With the breath, in and out, and in and out, and in and out. Oh, I'm really doing well. Three breaths in a row, that's pretty good. Or we may have the thought in, out, in, out, in, out, and wandering. I'll never get this. This is impossible. I can't do it. I'm a failure. It's the same three or four breaths and wandering. And then the mind jumps in with some commentary, some self-evaluation. I'm doing great. I'm not doing so well. Or maybe there's, there's a sense of well, when's something going to happen? You know, I've watched three or four breaths. <laughs> let's, let's get on with it. In all of these, in all of these attitudes, we're with the breath. We're aware of the breath, but there is an extra overlay on the experience. There's an overlay that creates some sense of self. I'm doing well. I'm not doing well. When is something going to happen? So we're aware, but we're not being mindful. We're present, but we're not free. We can see this same distinction very clearly as we feel and observe different sensations in the body. Being with the body and the different sensations reveals so much to us about the nature of the mind. Basic situation that every yogi has to be with and understand the relationship to pain. We're sitting and there's the combination first of sitting in an unaccustomed posture for so many hours so the body begins to get uncomfortable. Tuning into the deeper levels of tension or pain that are in the body all the time anyway regardless of the particular posture. Through opening, through this process of opening we're going to come face-to-face with painful feelings. It's a gold mine for understanding the mind. What does our mind do with that? It can do a lot of different things. We can be aware of painful feelings. The knees are burning, or the back is tight, or many, many different kinds of feelings. We can get caught in self-pity, in feeling sorry for ourselves, in comparing ourselves with others. Everybody looks like they're in bliss, and I'm the only one suffering. There's self-pity, there's fear. There's a lot of conditioning 
in the mind to be afraid of pain. I have to tell you one little fear story. Just how fear gets conditioned in the mind. It came up, I was teaching in New York this last weekend. And it reminded me of a story of, of when I was a child and growing up. And I remember so distinctly, often when I'd go outside, my grandmother would say, don't catch cold. <laughs> In later years, looking back on that, <laughs> it just struck me as so funny. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't going out looking for it. <laughs> you know, and it just kind of inculcates. And it wasn't, there wasn't such a heavy conditioning, but it was there. You know, it's like, okay, you have to be careful. <laughs> you know, something's going to get you. It's very obvious as we watch and feel the pain in our own bodies the times when there is fear, you know, and a pulling back, a contraction, an unwillingness to be with it. In those situations, we're aware of the pain, but we're not being mindful of it. There's self-pity, there's fear. Common yogi pattern, meditating pattern, is bargaining. I'll watch you if you'll go away. <laughs> so we're willing. We're, okay, there's a pain in the knee. I'll go there. I'll open to it. <laughs> when is it leaving? Or a more subtle variation of that, which I got caught in for a very long time. Because somehow it buys into some picture of the meditative world, very subtle, but very much a sticking point. When we're with pain, viewing it as a release. Okay, okay, we're releasing this tension. And so we're with it in order for it to release. And the reason that happens is because in meditation practice often there are a lot of releases and there is an opening of the energy flow. But that is a byproduct of the practice. To be observing or feeling a sensation in order for something to happen is not being mindful. Because already there is a leaning into it, there is a pushing, there is a desire and an aversion towards what is actually there. So the subtleties of the mind, the subtleties of this freeing of the mind from the grasp of desire, from the grasp of aversion, need to be very subtle in our attention. Likewise with pleasant sensations in the body. Just as we have this overlay of attitude, this overlay of reaction to painful feelings, 
we have a sitting and everything is smooth and light and lots of nice tingles all over. Oh, this was a good sitting. I'm really getting someplace. That's as much of a contraction around the sense of self as is the aversion or the fear or the self-pity to what's unpleasant. And again, it's an example of being aware of what's there without being mindful. Of being present to what's happening without being free. We see this in relationship to the breath. We see it in relationship to the different sensations in the body. We can see it also in terms of how we relate to thoughts. There's a lot of meditative conditioning around thought as an object. It's very easy to get into the mindset from a meditative perspective that thoughts are bad and that thoughts should stop. And I shouldn't be thinking, if I were really meditating well, I wouldn't be thinking so much. That is not a correct view of meditation. The thoughts themselves, as they come and go in the mind, are essentially empty. The thought is no problem at all. The problem arises when we get caught in a thought, when we get identified with a thought, when there's no mindfulness actually of what is happening. As you go through this time of practice, look carefully at the attitude in your mind about two things. The attitude about the particular content of thoughts. Are there thoughts you like and thoughts you don't like? Thoughts you think are okay to have and thoughts you think you shouldn't be having. See if there's an attitude in your mind about that. And also see as you're sitting and practicing and being with all these thoughts as they come, See if there's some kind of subtle reaction or attitude to the fact of thinking altogether. Is there some kind of judgment about it? Is there some kind of aversion? Because if there is, then again, we're not free. Thoughts are fine. They come and they go. And in and of themselves, they have no power. The only power they have is the power we give them. We invest in them. So we want to see if we're pushing the thoughts away, on the one hand, because we think they're bad, On the other hand, we want to see if we're indulging the thought process, either by choice, which we sometimes do, or simply out of habit, long, long, long established habit. 
of just indulging the thought process. And you know how wonderful those sittings are when you sit down and you begin a nice little fantasy and an hour later the bell rings. Oh, that went quick. <laughs> you know, and it feels good and there's no pain in the body and you feel wonderful. And Again, we may be aware that we're thinking. We may be aware that thoughts are there, but it's not being mindful. We see this with the breath, the overlay of attitude about being with the breath and wandering. We see it with sensations, the overlay of attitude, both with pain and pleasant sensations. We see it with our attitudes with respect to thoughts. We can watch it with emotions. The whole domain of our lives, the whole domain of our experience, is the same principle at work. What is the relationship we have to the range of emotions that comes in our practice and in our lives. Do we get lost over and over again? Now, does the mind have the tendency to get swamped by these floods of emotion? Do we start drowning in the vortex of emotion? Or do we push them away you know, and not feel anything, try to suppress them or deny them a signal that this might be happening because often it's happening and we don't know it there are some signals to watch for one signal might be an unidentified sense of struggle and again whether we're in our sitting practice or in our lives Take sitting as an example now, since we're on retreat. Sitting and this, we're trying to be with the breath, but somehow it feels like there's a struggle going on and we can't, we can't figure out what the struggle is about. It could well be that there is some underlying emotion present that we're not opening to. It might be impatience. It might be restlessness. It might be boredom. It might be sadness. It might be grief. It could be any one of a number of things. And as long as we don't see that or open to it, it creates a struggle in us, a conflict between the presence of that emotion and our attempt to be with some other object. And so the sense of struggle is a signal to us, a reminder, okay, let's take a look at what's going on. Another signal that there may be an emotional state that we're not mindful of is if we are getting lost again and again in obsessive repetitive thoughts. that keeps happening over and over again it would be worth looking to see if there's an emotion underneath that which is fueling it to look at the different attitudes we have towards emotion 
Sometimes people have the attitude that feeling all these emotions and expressing them is great. And big emotion comes and wonderful catharsis. Other people have the conditioning that these things are bad. I shouldn't be feeling these things. You know, anger is bad and sadness is bad. And, and so we, both of them is something extra. Both is an overlay on top of what is simply happening. In all of these examples of the breath and sensations and thoughts and emotions, in all of these examples, you can see the difference between being aware, that is knowing that something is there, and being mindful. It's the very special quality of mindful awareness that actually gives us the taste of freedom. And so then the question for us is how can we discover this particular quality, this particular track of meditative awareness within this whole spectrum of awareness. How could we access just that place of mindfulness? The first way is understanding what this quality of mindful awareness is. It's not simply knowing that something is going on. Because that could be overlay with a lot of different reactions. Mindful awareness is characterized by a very clear observing power of mind, the observing power of bare attention. Bare. Bare means naked, unadorned. Bare means being able to be with experience without judging, without evaluating, without commenting, without reacting. We're with the experience just as it presents itself. Attention means observing power. Bare attention, the observing power of mind which does not judge or comment or evaluate. It brings us to this to this profound simplicity of just being with what is there. The Buddha the Buddha summed this up in a very succinct teaching. He gave this teaching to somebody who was in quite a hurry to get the teachings, and so he had to abbreviate it a lot. And he did, and this person got enlightened when he heard this teaching. So listen carefully. (laughs) Now we can all go home. (laughs) It really says it all. The Buddha said to this person, you must practice 
so that in the seen there is just what is seen, and in the heard there is just what is heard, and in the sensed, that is smell and taste and touch, there is just what is sensed, and in the thought there is just what is thought. In the scene, just the scene. In the heard, just the heard. In the sensed, just the sensed. In the thought, just the thought. In each moment, there is just what there is. But our minds have gotten so complex and so conditioned to add to the simplicity of the moment all our likes and dislikes and judgments and wants and preferences. And so somehow we have to come out of that, unpack that, back to the original simplicity of the mind. Again, with, with his usual clarity and profundity of understanding, the Buddha saw, okay, how can we do this? How can we come back to the simplicity of mindful awareness? He saw that there were two factors, two qualities, which are the cause and condition for mindful awareness to arise. And this is, this is the beauty of the whole Buddha Dharma. It's not just saying something's a good idea, go do it. It's saying, yeah, these conditions lead to this. These conditions lead to something else. And so when we understand that, then we simply practice the conditions which lead to the desired result. So what is it? What are the qualities of mind which are the cause and condition for this very special quality of mindfulness to arise? The first of them is a particular mental factor. And the Buddha used this terminology of mental factors to describe different qualities of mind. one particular mental quality which he called perception. And what perception means is that quality of the mind which simply recognizes what an object is. It's that quality of recognition. We go outside and we see something and we recognize it as a tree or a woman or a man or a house or a road. we're able to distinguish, to pick out the distinguishing marks of an object so that we can recognize it in our memories. This is the function of perception. Perception operates on different levels. It's the 
level of recognizing objects, of storing that recognition in our memory for future use. It's also the recognition of very simple things. I'm sitting. That's the function of perception, knowing I'm sitting or standing or walking. This is going to all tie in in a very interesting way, if you can. <laughs> you kind of have to hold this piece for a while. Perception as a mental quality is not a particularly strong or penetrating factor. It's that quality which in a very easy, simple way sort of perceives an object and just knows. It's this, it's this, it's this. It recognizes it. In this sense, it's a much lighter quality than mindfulness. Because mindfulness enters deep into the object, experiences things very deeply. Perception is just riding on the surface, recognizing things. Here's where there's a little piece to the puzzle that falls into place. The Buddha said that perception is a condition for mindfulness to arise. Mental noting is a function of this quality of perception. The mental notes of in, out, rise, fall, that's not mindfulness. That's perception. It's the simple, easy surface recognition. This is happening, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening. And it's precisely because perception is the cause for mindfulness to arise that the noting is such a good tool for us to develop this. A confusion arises in people's minds and a reluctance to use the noting when they think that the mental note is being mindful. And it doesn't work because it always feels like the noting is getting in the way of mindfulness. You know, there's in and out, a rise and fall, and commonly people come into interviews, I can be more mindful without the noting. You know, it seems to be interfering. It's very helpful to understand that the noting is not mindfulness. And so we don't have to give it that weight. The noting is the function of perception. Very light. In, out, rising, falling, thinking, pain. It's the continuity of that perception which then makes a very deep and abiding mindfulness possible. I don't know whether you find this interesting, but I do. <laughs> so I'm glad you're here that I can talk about it. <laughs> it's, just, it's just so interesting to me to really begin to understand how this mind is working, because it is the mind which creates the world. You know, and if we don't understand it, what's created is a lot of confusion, a lot of conflict. And when we do understand it, 
what's created is a lot of clarity and a lot of peace. How does this tool of noting or the development of perception actually help our practice? Because for a lot of people, that's not obvious. It really seems like a big bother. In one way, when we put a note on an object, like the breath or a sensation or a sound or a thought, it reinforces that simple perception of recognition. It's this, 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 this. It's like putting a frame around a picture. And we put the frame around it and we can see more clearly what's, what the picture is. The noting also gives us feedback, very direct feedback in the moment of whether we're actually being mindful or not. There's a meditative condition. It's a little like a disease, but it's not quite as heavy as a disease. (laughs) There's this meditation condition, which I call more or less mindfulness. (laughs) We're kind of mindful. (laughs) We're sort of there. You know that this is the condition you're in if you're in the hall watching the breath, feeling the breath, and noting lifting, moving, placing. That's a signal. <laughs> you know, you, you're kind of there, but you're not really there. Or the breath is rising and you're noting falling. <laughs> Without the noting, we could be as dissociated and not know it. But the noting is, it makes it very obvious to us that that force of initial connection is weak. Because when that initial connection is there, the note is right there and it's accurate. And so the noting is a feedback. It's a continual loop which is telling us are we being deeply mindful or are are we in this kind of mindfulness state. Noting is helpful in another way because we can use it on very small objects. We can note a pinpoint sensation you know, of tightness or pressure or vibration. And we can also use the note to frame a very large state A lot of people in interviews today spoke about sleepiness. It's a common, common experience for people. It's possible to frame the whole experience of sleepiness with a note. We develop the perception, the recognition of that state itself. Sleepy, sleepy. And as we frame it, then we can notice very carefully, okay, what makes this state up? We can look at it more precisely, more carefully. Sometimes people are sitting, and we don't know what's going on. There's just confusion, or there's chaos, or there's something big, not a pinpoint delicate object. The noting works as well with framing that whole state, 
confusion, confusion. As we note it, we're in a proper relationship to it. If we're not noting it, most likely we're lost in it. So the noting works very well to strengthen this quality of accurate perception. There's one last benefit of the noting. The reason I'm going through this in a fair amount of detail is commensurate with the amount of resistance people have to usually doing noting <laughs> because it's quite a bother. You know, it actually takes some effort to do. And my experience in myself and with many people is they don't like to do it. But once I've understood really the value and how it enhances the quality of our mindfulness, for myself it gave a lot of inspiration to actually work with the tool because it was so onward leading. The last little help that the noting can give us and something to pay attention to is to listen to the tone of voice of the note. Because the tone of voice will reveal to us the quality of our mind state. (laughs) It's a dead giveaway that we're not being mindful. We're being aware, but we're not simply observing with bare attention. And so when we see that the note is too loud, too harsh, too aversive, too impatient, all of that we can hear in the voice of it. It's a reminder to us, okay, soften the mind. Let the mind get more open, more allowing, more receptive. We can actually do that, effect that change in our minds by actually softening the tone of voice of the note. There's this magical correlation. Okay, so perception and noting is really just a part of perception. Perception is the first of the conditions or the causes for mindful awareness to arise. This continuity of recognition. This, 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 this. We get very clear about what is actually happening in our experience, moment to moment. So that's the first condition for mindful awareness. Buddha said that the second condition for this very special quality of mindfulness to arise is mindfulness itself. And what he meant by that is that each moment that we're truly mindful makes conditions the arising of that quality in the next moment. This is an extremely important principle. That each moment's experience conditions that quality arising in the next moment. When we understand this, we begin to understand the whole phenomenon phenomena 
of momentum in practice. And those of you who are experienced yogis know, especially on retreat, as you practice more and more continuously, there is a momentum of energy that starts to build that is very, very powerful. The energy builds, the mindfulness builds, the concentration builds, and at a certain point, the momentum is so strong that the momentum carries the practice, becomes very effortless in that way. It's like, you know, in the old days when, when people had to crank up cars, and crank, 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 and then the engine turns over and it goes. What we're doing in the beginning is cranking up the mindfulness. Crank, 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 crank. And at a certain point, it just goes. The mindfulness starts working by itself precisely because of this point that the Buddha is making, that mindfulness itself is the condition for mindfulness to arise in the future because it conditions the next moment. What does this mean for us? When I understood this, it had a very powerful impact on my practice. Because before that, I sort of saw the mindfulness as a chore. a good thing to do, <laughs> but there was, it was the energy of a chore. When I understood this phenomenon of momentum and how each moment actually strengthens the arising of it in the next moment, in the next, and the next, and the next, there was this tremendous... It was almost like a sense of gratitude or welcoming each next moment because it gave me the opportunity to add one more one more drop in this in this flow of momentum and when you do that over and over again actually can begin to feel it build when we bring that understanding to the practice it's no longer giving lip service to the idea that every moment is precious, which is you know, nice spiritual jargon. We actually start living that way because we understand yes, this moment of mindfulness makes the next moment, is the, is the condition for the next moment of mindfulness to be even more powerful and more powerful, and more powerful, and more powerful. And that's how the whole practice flowers. There is an amazing journey to take. You know, we, for the most part, are living just on the surface of understanding what this life is about. And, and many people, many people are not even on the surface of understanding. They're simply just acting out as we see so clearly in the world. To have the opportunity actually to stop, whether it's for a day or a few hours or a few days or nine days or however long, 
And just to be creating the conditions for this unfolding journey to take place is fantastic. And it happens not by some wish and not by some hope. It happens from a very clear understanding of the conditions which make it possible. The Buddha was very clear about it. And countless, countless people who have, who have walked on this journey have seen it, have discovered it for themselves. Perception is the condition for mindful awareness. Mindfulness itself in each moment is the condition for the growing momentum. Enjoy yourselves. The practice really can be done with a great sense of delight. Even when it's painful and even when it's uncomfortable and working through various stuff, just the delight in discovery. This is what's happening. This is what's happening. This is what's happening. And from that we come to a real place of understanding. And it's out of the understanding that we really become free. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.